Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. So I get lots of questions from listeners and just people I meet um, about various legal things. And I've learned to answer those questions. Uh, I don't send a bill <laughs> when someone asks me this, but you know, it's kind of how it goes when you've been a lawyer for a while and you might be at a cocktail party or out to dinner and invariably someone comes up and says, say, Kirk, I have a question I wonder if you could answer. Sometimes it's based on something that's really happening to this person, but more often it's just a legal question about how things work. And what I do is I kind of save up those questions, and when I get enough of them, uh, you know, we take a break from current events or stuff going on in the news right now and do a little legal discussion based on things that people tell me they're interested in. So I want to start off with um, several questions I've had over the past months and uh, having to do with when do the police need to get a warrant? And I know we talk about this all the time on the show, but I just kind of wanted to strip it back and talk about basics here because you really need to understand the origins behind this entire legal process and what the Constitution envisions when we're talking about warrants. So uh, the basic question I've received several times, when is a warrant required? And that's an excellent question that isn't easily answered because there are so many different scenarios that come up. And just a little footnote here. Um, one thing that lawyers do when they are analyzing a particular situation, and it could be from the defense perspective or prosecutors do the same thing when they're looking at a, a particular scenario and what the law permits, what it doesn't, if there is a bright line, when is it crossed? Those types of things. And what we do is we look at case law. And that is part of the um, legal tradition that we actually inherited from England based on a concept called the common law. The idea behind it is that when there is an established ruling on something, that a controversy has been brought to court and a judge rules on an issue, and then if an appellate court reviews that issue and basically affirms or reverses the trial court's ruling, it results in what we call a case for case law purposes. And those cases, to varying degrees, represent precedent. That's the common law tradition, is that citing precedent, sometimes binding, sometimes not, but um, written opinions from appellate courts that give guidance to the legal community, the law enforcement community, and citizens at large, how the law works in varying different situations. So as you can probably imagine, every time there is a factual scenario that's brought up by a particular situation, it can vary tremendously just based on every little nuance of fact that leads to a decision that's made, usually by law enforcement, and then how that is pursued and what sort of legal process must be followed in order for things to be used in court and simultaneously not violate someone's constitutional rights. So all of this is found in the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, and that's where we first see the phrase probable cause used. It's actually in the Bill of Rights. Um, 
if you're familiar with the Bill of Rights, you know that all of the amendments to the Constitution are designed to be as concise as possible and use wording that is intended in the future for many generations to be interpreted and followed as the times change. It's supposed to be a dynamic and fluid process, which is why sometimes you see these terms that don't contain their own definitions, like the term probable cause. So the Constitution doesn't define what probable cause is. And in fact, even today in the uh, 2022 era, the, the mid-2020s, uh, and going forward, we still don't have a mathematical way of applying this. It's not like you can apply a percentage of proof or anything else. You know, probable cause in some contexts can be stated as when an officer possesses sufficient reason to believe that a crime has probably been committed. Still, we're using vague and subjective terms here. But then we see case law that further refines that to say things such as a mere hunch or guesswork is not sufficient. We know that probable cause is more than reasonable suspicion, another term that's used in the law. But we also know that it's less than proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So this is where things can get very confusing because probable cause is the initiation of a quest for, to gather evidence. And it's logical that we wouldn't require um, the police or any law enforcement official for that matter to have certainty to the level of beyond a reasonable doubt before they even seek to find the evidence. Then there really wouldn't be any cases prosecuted <laughs> because that's a very, very high burden. So recognizing the fact that probable cause is part of the analysis when a case is being, you know, quote unquote, developed or there's an investigation at play. Um, it is certainly a lesser standard. But in order to make it so it's not arbitrary, and so that um, it's not something where warrants are just grant, supposedly granted freely upon any uh, allegation, that's, this is why we have this burden that's there. Still, it's hard to define in any given context, and it's hard to say in any given case, whether it's clear that probable cause does or doesn't exist. But the trend over the years, and it's an increasingly problematic trend, is that probable cause is not supposed to be a rubber stamp for the approval of any search that makes out um, you know, a one-sided, not necessarily objective portrayal of the status of an investigation. Because if it was, then that would fall in the category of what we call general warrants. And general warrants are exactly what the Fourth Amendment is designed to prevent. So a general warrant, if they ever existed and they're not supposed to, would mean that any search could be conducted at any time on any citizen or their property um, for any reason or no reason. So like a general standing ongoing warrant. Now, Surprisingly, there are contexts, many of them, where probable cause isn't required because of the particular situation that um, applies. And it can be because someone has agreed in advance that they will waive any such requirement. The best example is someone who is placed on probation. 
when somebody signs on and agrees to be on probation, a standard term is that they will agree that any search and or seizure of evidence applicable to that person on probation will not need to rise to the level of probable cause. And the rationale behind that is that probation is voluntary and one does not need to agree to such things if they don't want to. Now, unfortunately, the alternative to probation is often a much harsher penalty that requires either jail or prison time. So it's kind of one of those catch-22 situations where in order to get the benefit of being on probation, one needs to agree to it and one needs to waive certain rights that would be applicable under other circumstances. Another example is that probable cause can be waived by contract. There are certain jobs and certain um, categories of, um, I guess, occupations in society, positions in society, where by virtue of that person's employment or something else that they've, they will agree to by contract, they are waiving a probable cause requirement. A very good example is a job that requires random drug testing. It's usually built into a contract or at least there's some sort of written understanding that at any time an employer can ask an employee to submit to drug testing without probable cause. That's um, the very nature of random drug testing is that it doesn't require either advance notice or probable cause. So, again, that's a situation where someone would not have to agree to that if they didn't want to have employment. Uh, under that particular set of, under that particular, you know, circumstance. Another example might be that if someone is renting property and landlords are permitted in some circumstances to require that someone uh, leasing space or property consents to the owner of that property being allowed to inspect or search the premises without probable cause. And if someone says, okay, and they sign on the dotted line, well, then we've just bypassed that whole process. And the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply because somebody agreed that it doesn't. All right, it's time for a break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. We're talking about warrants because people ask me questions about this all the time. And I know I talk about it all the time, but still, I keep getting questions, so I keep giving answers. Um... So before the break, we were talking about situations where someone may contract away their right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure. And there's another exception, a, a very large one, as a matter of fact, that applies in many, many situations where a warrant will not be required, and that is consent. And I don't mean contractual type consent like we talked about earlier, but now we're talking about when the law enforcement approaches somebody and says, hey do you mind, would you consent to a search of your vehicle or of your person or of your residence? And if somebody says yes, then that just completely forgives any need for obtaining a warrant. And this is where we get into that very tricky and delicate area of interactions between citizens and law enforcement. When law enforcement is conducting an investigation. Oftentimes they will get a tip or they'll have, you know, limited information that doesn't necessarily rise to the level of probable cause and they know that they can't get a warrant. 
but they will try to see if someone will consent nonetheless. And this is a very, um, again, delicate area of the law because the police are allowed to say certain things in that context, but are not allowed to say other things. I'll give you an example of something that a police officer should not say under the law. If they're talking to a citizen, they know that they don't have probable cause and have not obtained a warrant. But if they tell the citizen, if you don't consent to a search, we'll just go get a warrant and you'll have to be inconvenienced and wait around for who knows how many hours that will take. You won't be allowed to leave your premises and you won't be allowed to move basically from your couch while another law enforcement officer monitors you to make sure that you don't destroy any potential evidence. Now, what's wrong with that statement? The, the predicate fact that I gave you is that if an officer knows that they have not and cannot obtain a warrant because of a lack of evidence, they can't then state that they will simply go get one if the person doesn't consent. Now, let's change that very slightly, and we'll turn it into a situation where the police can, in fact, use very similar words. An example of that would be if an officer has what could be termed probable cause by virtue of reliable information that's corroborated, <clears throat> that they could go seek a warrant, but because of the timing, it just is more convenient and probably wiser to attempt to ask for consent there on the spot in order to not waste time, in order to not wake up a judge in the middle of the night, whatever the case may be. An officer that then could state, listen, I have probable cause to go get a warrant and you're free to not consent. But if that's the case, then we'll sit you here. We'll go get a warrant. Who knows how long that will take. But I'm telling you right now that we have the ability to go get one. Now, if those things are true, then that is lawful. So an officer can say, you know, I, it's easy for me to go get one or, you know, it'll take a while, but I can go do that if you'd prefer. Uh, but if you consent, then we don't have to do all that. And someone consents under those circumstances. And if it's true that an officer does or, and I, let's just say the whole law enforcement agency, because there's something called the collective knowledge doctrine. That means anybody within law enforcement that has knowledge of something can be deemed to be within the possession of any officer in that agency. So even if the officer right there on the spot is not aware of all aspects of an investigation, but is aware of some of them, and if somebody else, or again, collectively, the entire agency possesses sufficient knowledge that could result in obtaining a warrant, then yes, we look at whether probable cause exists. Now, that's a practice that happens, although it's not preferred, because what's happening there is that the police are inviting a challenge to whether there really was or wasn't probable cause. Um, so we tend to see those words avoided or they're supplemented with things such as I don't know if we can get a warrant, but we will certainly try. That is true. I mean, there's never a situation where that isn't true, right? There's still an amount of psychological um, 
I'm not going to say manipulation, but adjustment of the surrounding circumstances when those conversations happened. And 99 out of 100 people would feel that they either don't have a choice or it's just going to be in their best interest to exercise the choice in the way that the law enforcement officer is asking that person to do so. And this is where we see ongoing problems with the original intent behind the Fourth Amendment and several other of our constitutional rights, that they are there to protect citizens against um, abuses of the government. Yet, over the years, over the decades, we see case after case where the appellate courts will review these scenarios with a mind's eye towards um, looking at allowing the search to be upheld. And there's reasons for that that are very complicated, one of which is the fact that, and this is just true, appellate courts don't exist in reality. They don't exist in the uh, concurrent time when something is happening. It's a, you know, oftentimes we say sitting in the ivory tower of uh, book knowledge, you're not actually experiencing those events as they occurred in real time. Of course, that's true. So, Part of the rationale there is that second-guessing somebody who is a quote-unquote, you know, trusted law enforcement source is perhaps um, not an ideal way to analyze a situation if it doesn't take into account every single aspect of what that officer was confronted with at the time, which results in us relying a great deal on how officers describe a scenario that they're faced with, and after the fact when they're defending that decision, it tends to be shaded in such a way that it, it justifies the search in ways that they know the appellate courts will view favorably. So putting all that aside and getting back to the issue of why the, these rights exist in the form that they do, you know, constitutional rights, there's supposed to be nothing that can change a constitutional right except for the withdrawal of an amendment that is part of the Constitution or a change in the Constitution itself. And the reason why we have that particular structure is so that laws passed by legislatures um, on the state level or even in Congress and Senate, and then even signed by the president, cannot take precedence over or, or be inconsistent with those bedrock constitutional rights. I mean, that's what a constitutional right means, is that it's embodied in a place in our law that can't be changed except through a very difficult process, an actual amendment to the underlying constitutional principles of our society. So that's why, you know, you've never seen the Fourth Amendment get repealed. It's always been there since it was enacted. There are laws and there are case law interpretations of laws that affect all of this around the edges, but the basic issue is always there, and it cannot be changed without an actual change in the constitutional structure. So given that, given that there's a reason why it has that profound impact, the reason that it's shielded from um, change so that it is not easy for whatever particular trend is going on in society um, to just willy-nilly take away a right that's been in existence since the founding of our government. 
Given that, the realities of how things work, you know, on the streets, in the community, at large, and everything that happens, instead of changing the Constitution, it gets, it gets whittled away at. So the exceptions are far no, more numerous than the actual rule. So you, you don't see a case that goes up and says, hey, there wasn't a warrant, there wasn't probable cause, the search isn't good. It's always much more complicated than that. And there's always a, an analysis that considers all the different reasons why, even if it appears to be a facial uh, violation of the Fourth Amendment, that the search can still be found to be valid. So, going back to the original question, when is the search required? Well, upon probable cause, like it says in the Fourth Amendment, or if there's some exception to that that applies. And when we come back from the break, we'll talk about other reasons why um, the police may not need or even want a warrant under particular situations. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. So let's talk about other reasons why the police may not even need to try to get a warrant. Probably one of the best examples of that um, situation would be what we call exigent circumstances. And the best way to view that in common English <laughs> is an emergency, something that's happening so fast and um, precipitously that it would make no sense to stop everything and then try and go get a warrant because it would be impossible. Um, Think about someone who's fleeing the scene um, with the apparent ability to carry away evidence or disappear into the ether. Um, hot pursuit is another way that we can describe a subcategory of exigent circumstances. But it also applies in situations where the police may go up to a house, knock on the door. They don't have a warrant. They just want to talk to somebody. But they can see you know, through the screen door or through the window that someone is gathering up a bunch of information and running into, uh, gathering up a bunch of items, going, running into the bathroom and starting to flush the toilet. <laughs> well, there have been cases like that. And if the police can reasonably, convincingly say that they thought someone was destroying evidence that they already suspected might be there, even if they don't have probable cause, there have been cases where they will enter the premises and then stop the person from destroying the evidence. There's also a very broad category that we've talked about frequently on this show called community caretaker functions. And again, this is a this is nowhere in the Constitution. This is a case law invention, something that recognizes that law enforcement personnel are not always investigating crimes. Now, they're trained to be always on the lookout for criminal activity, but... I guess in its purest sense, if someone appears like they're lost or if an officer believes that they may be able to provide assistance, it's accepted in our society that they can interact with that citizen to determine if they need help. And the premise of this community caretaker exception to the warrant requirement is that we want to, as a society, encourage police to be helpful when they can be. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is what starts off as a supposed community caretaker interaction oftentimes quickly turns into a criminal investigation. There are many, many, many examples of this happening. And then the issue is going back to why the officer initiated that interaction, 
or, or allowed the interaction to occur. And then under the circumstances, if the officer abandoned a community caretaker function by initiating a law enforcement criminal or, you know, violation type investigation without there being probable cause or, I guess, reasonable suspicion in that case to do so, to transform it. Now, of course, there are situations that can happen. Let's say somebody, you know, pulls up to an off uh, squad car and gives a little motion for the officer to roll down the window. The officer rolls down the window. The person says, "Hey, what street am I driving on? I'm too drunk to fake to read the street signs." Well, we wouldn't expect an officer to just say, "Oh, you're on Eighth Street. Um, have a nice day." If they're confronted with a situation that reasonably calls for further and out, you know, further inquiry. And even if it could be something that is a violation of law, that you know, we don't prohibit that from occurring. So I'm not saying that this community caretaker idea is something that is completely absurd or always runs afoul of our right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, but it's an exception to the warrant requirement, and it's oftentimes applied in situations where um, the interaction between police and citizens should be limited in many ways. I mean, I had a case many years ago, I tell this story because it was so surprising to me that a judge would rule this way. And, you know, lo and behold, it's it's not that uncommon that a judge might rule this way. But I had a, I'm going to speak in hypotheticals. Let's not even say it was a client of mine. We'll just put it that way. Let's say somebody is driving down the road and an officer is, while driving, while following that person, uh, makes an attempt to look at their license plate and see if their registration is valid. And let's just say, hypothetically, the officer types in one of the numbers wrong, or let's say the officer's looking for that sticker, and due to <laughs> an inexact uh, color, uh, perception, some degree of color blindness, or just not incredibly good eyesight, an officer isn't able to verify from his or her perspective if the registration is valid. So what I'm getting at here is let's presume a mistake is made. An officer mistakenly um, believes that someone's driving on a revoked license, when in reality they are not. Let's also assume that the vehicle is properly um, registered, has a proper, correct, valid, up-to-date registration sticker on it, and let's assume that the license plate is valid and correct, and that there is no, absolutely no legal reason why this person um, shouldn't be allowed to operate a motor vehicle based on the registration status. Well, let's take the hypothetical a little further. The officer pulls the person over based on a mistake of fact, something that the officer simply perceived incorrectly. And let's say that officer gets out of his or her vehicle, walks up to the uh, suspect vehicle, and then upon closer examination realizes that, oh no, this is completely valid, completely legit. One would think that that ends the inquiry and the officer should simply get back in the car and leave. But there have been rulings where an officer under that set of circumstances would then, upon realizing the mistake, approach the vehicle, 
to say, to explain that it was a mistake to pull the person over and that, golly, I'm sorry. And that, you know, there is no traffic stop here. But while they're at it, they might notice an odor of intoxicants or the smell of, of alcohol, or they might see something in the car that raises some suspicion. And then the officer converts all of that back into a law enforcement criminal investigation. I, I have heard a judge state, um, and this is many, many years ago, the judge isn't even on the bench anymore, but I've heard a judge state that, what would you expect an officer to do in that situation? Just drive away? That would be rude. Well, when somebody's facing a criminal charge, I'm sure they wouldn't mind if the officer was a little bit rude by, you know, letting them go. <laughs> but you, but when we look at these situations, we always have to look at how and and why a potential suppression remedy might be appropriate. And what I mean by that is that if there is a violation of one's constitutional rights that can be established, and if there is subsequent evidence that is gathered that the prosecution intends to use against that defendant, the remedy might be, not always, might be suppression of that evidence. In other words, depriving the prosecution of the opportunity to use it against that citizen, that defendant. It's supposed to be a form of punishment and a form of deterrence. I mean, gosh, we talk about deterrence all the time in the law. We're usually talking about when somebody gets sentenced and how it's supposed to deter that individual, but also anyone else in society that might be aware of the crime that a person committed and what kind of sentence follows from that. We hear it all the time that when somebody gets sent to prison, a judge will often say, well, I'm doing this because the punishment fits the crime that our legislature has determined that when people do these things, there will be a certain range of punishments. And I'm doing this to punish you, Mr. Defendant, to deter you from the same conduct in the future and to deter others who might be aware or who might be willing to commit such a crime. That same rule applies when it relates to law enforcement when they violate people's rights. The, the fruit of the poisonous tree is one way of wording it, but it's also, you know, characterized as a suppression remedy appropriate upon a violation of a person's rights. And that starts another very complicated inquiry that gets into when is it appropriate to deter certain law enforcement practices and when is it appropriate to permit them, even if a constitutional violation has been found. And a lot of that has to do with whether it's intentional, whether it's reasonable, and whether or not a, a deterrent analysis as it relates to other law enforcement officers who might do the same thing is something that benefits society. By the way, none of that's in the Constitution anywhere, all created by case law. So we'll talk more about that when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back, my friends. Let's... um bring this on home by talking about the varying circumstances where the violation of one's rights can result in the possibility of suppression of evidence. And before the break, we were talking about how that means there are times when the courts will view it as appropriate to not allow 
evidence which may have been gathered in violation of one's rights to be used against them in subsequent proceedings. An example would be, I'll just give you a real simple one, and it has to do with the Fifth Amendment and what we all know as our Miranda rights. I could spend an entire show or several shows on the issue of what those Miranda rights truly are, when they kick in, how they're applied, and the many, many exceptions to when they are required. But we do all know, and we're all familiar with from TV, movies, and stuff we learned in school, that the police are supposed to read you your rights. And we call them Miranda rights because it comes from the case of Miranda versus Arizona. Originally penned Arizona versus Miranda. Um, So what we know from that is, and Miranda didn't create any new law. What it did is it reinforced the importance of recognizing that the Fifth Amendment is there for a reason. That one has that right to remain silent. And as we go through our lives in various different contexts and face different situations, there are times when that right is particularly important. The most important time is when a representative of the government is asking questions and the answers to those questions could incriminate that citizen. Okay, because you have conversations all the time, every day with people. Sometimes um, you wouldn't even dream that the Fifth Amendment would be applicable. Like if you're just talking to your neighbor, you know, and their neighbor says, hey, um, they just ask you a question. Hey, are you going to mow your lawn on Saturday? It would be very unnatural and I think extremely uncommon to say, I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment right, unless you were joking, you know. But you don't do that because it's not the context wherein anyone would expect Um, that privilege against governmental interference with our daily lives to kick in. So the reason why those Miranda rights exist is that a police officer, law enforcement agent, detective, whomever, who is a representative of the government, who is trying to gather evidence that will be adverse to the person they're questioning, is required to notify them that, hey, this is one of those times when... The Fifth Amendment is really important, and it's why it exists, is for this particular scenario. And when our Founding Fathers drafted and adopted the Fifth Amendment, this is precisely what they had in mind, is that before I ask you any questions, those old men that wore white wigs wanted you to know that you can remain silent and you don't have to answer anything, and there can be no punishment, penalty, or consequence whatsoever if you do invoke that right. Now, see, I just explain those rights much more uh, emphatically (laughs) than law enforcement people are required to do. But let's just view a scenario where somebody is in custody, which is one of those requirements when those Miranda rights kick in. The police know very well that the questions they're about to ask are going to be... you know, inc- accusatory and the answers will be incriminating. Accusatory, let's say. Um, under those two facts, that means that a, a law enforcement officer is required to advise somebody of their Miranda warning. So let's just say they they deliberately don't do that and say, yeah, you know, if I say that, our perp might not answer any questions, so I'm just going to skip it, Right. Well, if it were that clear of a situation, the natural consequence would be that anything that person says cannot be used against them in a court of law. 
That's the suppression remedy. And anything that derives from that is, again, what we call fruit of the poisonous tree. So why is it appropriate to suppress in that situation? Because the law enforcement officer had a decision to make. Do I read this person their rights or do I just not do that on purpose and say to myself, eh, I'm not as likely to be able to get a confession out of this person if I tell them that they don't have to talk to me. So that deterrent effect on that law enforcement practice is designed to promote and in fact require the reading of one's rights when it is required. Because if it isn't done, then it hurts that case and it, it serves as an example for all other law enforcement officers who may be aware of that situation to not do the same thing, to basically do what the law requires. So as we apply that to these warrant situations, there's a huge gaping hole in the whole process when we do an analysis of this. And that is based on uh, a case for, called Leon versus United States, or United States versus Leon. And we call it the Leon good faith exception. So work with me here, because a lot of people find this not only fascinating, but mind-blowing about how unfair this is. But let's say a law enforcement officer makes a mistake, or let's say they push things in a direction that probably went too far, or let's say they're unaware of the fact that a warrant had been granted improperly because they didn't weren't part of the process of obtaining it, or they didn't look at it carefully enough, or a lot of other things that can be part of that. Um, and basically, there's some leeway that's given in the law, where if it doesn't appear that it would serve society's interest to basically punish the prosecution in the process of seeking to prosecute somebody with evidence that may have been in violation of someone's rights, it can nonetheless be admitted if it was done in what we call good faith. Good faith is such a broad category and encompasses so many different things, it's literally impossible for me to cover all of them. You could take a year-long course that I would teach you every day and we still wouldn't get through it all because of how complicated it is. But essentially, <laughs> this is something that we confront routinely. And by the way, I have thought for many, many years that Leon, this Leon case and the line of cases that flow from that, are contrary to everything else that we do when it comes to deterrence within the law. Because it's basically like, well, you didn't do the right thing, you totally violated someone's rights, you shouldn't have done what you did, but you tried, so mm, that's okay. We'll let you do it. There isn't stuff, there isn't a whole lot of other areas in the law, I can't think of any off the top of my head, where that kind of standard is applied. And again, it exists nowhere in the Constitution. It's only a case law creation that we even have this discussion. Because otherwise, it should be that when one's rights are violated, they're violated. And why would we want to treat it that way and have evidence suppressed? So that police are vigilant and careful, very careful, not to violate someone's rights. When we know that there's this good faith exception that one can simply state, Oh, I wasn't fully informed, or I really, yeah, I, I made a mistake. Uh, golly, I'm sorry. And if it's not a, so egregious of a mistake that then the courts are allowed to say, well, you know, it's not like this officer really wanted to violate this person's rights so intentionally that we need to 
suppress evidence, so we'll still let it in, which, which erases the entire analysis, which makes it so that right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure is utterly meaningless. Yet we let that be the, the reason, the rationale behind it, for public policy reasons. So that, um, and you, you've, you can see this in some of the case law. One might argue that there should never be evidence allowed because that will require vigilance and attention to detail. And by the way, people who are trained and paid to be professional would then be responsible for, you know, the correctness or accuracy of their work, like a lot of us get judged by, right? But in that law enforcement scenario, the, the fact that there can be mistakes and if they're, you know, if one can say that it was, you know, not something that would require suppression because, golly, then the police wouldn't be, then the prosecution couldn't proceed with putting bad guys in jail, um, and applied to a particular situation, they might view that as something that's contrary to society's interests. But it's really the only situation I can think of where we give a pass based on the fact that there's other considerations that are somewhat fearful. And what I mean by fearful is that let's say somebody is accused of and may have committed a very serious offense. And then the manner in which law enforcement gathered that evidence is in violation of one's rights. There's this temptation to find a loophole in the law that would still allow the bad guy or gal to be prosecuted and sent to prison. And that's really where that exception comes from. Well, we're out of time, so I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And, you know, again, I'll do this every so often where I come up with a topic that has been the subject of questions and I'll do my best to explain it in an entertaining way. So, Hope you've enjoyed the Joe show. Please tune in next week as you can every single week right here on 1330 on 101.5. This has been Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.